So if you have your Bibles, then will you please turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. It's a small passage, very familiar to all of us. Very misused, often abused, but a great passage nonetheless. I'm going to read it again, and then let's see what God has to say to us um, over the last next few minutes. Uh, more than that, actually. <laughs> Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand the truth and this passage. Show us Jesus. Expose a sinful heart. Help us to come to you. Have mercy on us. May you increase and we decrease. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said earlier, this passage is a very familiar passage, but often misunderstood. And... Just going by, if you were paying attention to the order of service, the songs you're singing, the, the, uh, the texts that have been chosen for reading, I think you're already, you already have an inkling, an idea, what this text is about. And that's the benefit of being in a good church. That's the benefit of being, sitting under good teaching, having faithful elders who teach you well and help you understand that. So in a sense... Um, as I was singing these songs and reading, uh, listening to all these passages being read, I'm like, my work has already been done in a sense. You already kind of know what's going to come. But nonetheless, we'll still talk about it, okay? Well, what I'm going to do, I'm going to make you do a lot of work with me. So before we get into chapter 7, verses 7 to 11, I'm going to run through Matthew chapter 1 and, and jump into various passages. I'm to look at various passages and then try to understand what is a thrust? What does it mean? Why does this text um, appear here? I mean, that's a good question to ask always. Whenever you read Scripture, you and I should ask, why is this specific text, why is this passage um, put in this place? Uh, why? And I think, I think if we don't do that, then sometimes we end up making a lot of mistakes. So if you know anything about Matthew... The Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew basically presents Jesus as the king, king of the one true God. He presents him as the Davidic king, king in the line of, of uh, the descendant of David. And it becomes very clear in Matthew chapter 1. So if you look at me in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, here it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right? 
So it's very clear from the what is it about, who, who, who is Matthew presenting here, he's presenting us, he's bringing to um, the king, Jesus, who is the descendant of no one else but David. Um, and, and you see that in verse 17 again, so all the generations from Abraham to David, and from David to deportation to Babylon, and from deportation to Babylon to Christ. That's what's going on here. And this is in fulfillment to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 16. The promise that God, the covenant that God had made with David, as his descendants, his, his throne will be everlasting. Who will be sitting on this throne? The Davidic king. Who is this king? And this is what we come to see in Matthew. So this is what basically Matthew is doing. Matthew presents, brings Jesus right before us as the Davidic king. Um, and who is this king? This king is one who will save his people from their sins. So that's what we see in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. He's a king sent from God. He is the Davidic king, but he has a specific purpose, a specific agenda. He's come to save his people from their sins. He is God's own son. That's what we see in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. So the Old Testament promises are to be fulfilled in the life of this son who is the king. And before this king comes, there's a forerunner in chapter 3. A, a messenger comes before this king. So if you see Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 onwards, John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes before this king. He comes preparing the way for this king. And he preaches. And what does he preach? John, Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So that this messenger that comes before the king brings a message of repentance. Turn away from your sinful ways. Turn away from selfish life. Turn away from a life that serves your own desires. And turn to God. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven, which is just a different way of saying kingdom of God, is at hand. It's near. And why is the kingdom of God is at hand? Why is the kingdom of God at hand? Because the king is about to come. The king is very near. If the kingdom is here, the king must be somewhere. And who is this king? The very king for whom the whole scripture has been waiting for. And this, this king comes in the person of Jesus Christ. And then very after that, in chapter 3, verses three, uh, th 13 to 17, we see uh, Jesus is baptized, and, and God speaks and says, This is my beloved Son. Chapter 3, verse 17. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So he's the King, who is God's Son, in whom God is well pleased. And in chapter 4, in the beginning, if you know a little bit of Matthew, Jesus is tempted, and, and, he, and he overcomes. He is victorious in his trials and temptation unlike Israel, unlike Adam, because he is the beloved son. And then Jesus starts his ministry in chapter 4, verses 12 onwards. And in verse 17, chapter 4, verse 17, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, he has the same message to preach, just as his forerunner, just as John the Baptist. What does he say in chapter 4, verse 17? He is the king who comes bringing a message, he says, 
Verse 17, Jesus began to preach, saying what? Repent, turn away, turn, turn away from your sins. Repent of your sinful life, uh, your, your own ways, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So here's the king who proclaims about his kingdom, and that's what he does in verse 23. Look at me in chapter 4, verse 23. He goes around uh, all throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He speaks, preaches, proclaims about the kingdom and healing every disease. And this is very important. So before we get into chapter 5, because from chapter 5 onwards, chapter 5 to all the way to chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 5, 1 to chapter 8, chapter 1. It's known as the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus delivers a message, a sermon, some teachings to his people. And, and this is very important because here's the king who has come. He, ha he ushers in his kingdom. He inaugurates his kingdom. But now this king also wants to proclaim to his people, to preach to his people, to, to tell his people very clearly how people in his kingdom must live. He proclaims, he teaches about the kingdom principles. So the king is here, the kingdom is here, and in chapter 5 to chapter 8, we have kingdom principles. How to live, how one must behave. If you are part of the kingdom, if you submit to this king, if you are one of his subjects, you must know how to live. So that's what's happening in chapter 5 to chapter 8. And actually, uh, in chapter 5, verses uh, 2 to 12, it's, uh, that first section is known as the Beatitudes. Now, that's very important because if you don't pay attention to the Beatitudes, all you think about the Sermon of the, uh, on the Mount as, 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 as a, um, a section which has lots of imperatives, lots of commands, lots of do this, be like this, behave in this way, you must do this. And it's, it becomes very burdensome. It becomes very, it's almost, uh, if you do not understand the context, if, if we don't pay attention to what's going on, it becomes very heavy and hard to carry on our shoulders. But this is where chapter 5, verses 2 to 12 are very important, the Beatitudes. So here's the king in chapter 5. Chapter 5, the king has come. He has started proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He sees the crowd in chapter 5, verse 1. He goes up the mountain, and he sits down, and his disciples come to him. And this all is very intentional. There's a lot of imagery. There's a lot of play on words here. I mean, Matthew intentionally chooses these words very carefully. It's very intentional, careful, precise, planned for us to pay attention to what's going on. So the king is here. There's a lot of play on Old Testament imagery. The king uh, goes up the mountain. Now, if you, if you know anything about the Old Testament, there was someone who went up the mountain. He brought God's word to his people. But here is the king who goes up the mountain. He sits down. I mean, that's a very traditional Jewish uh, rabbinic way of teaching, a posture of teaching, and he opens his mouth. Now, he delivers something that he himself gives. So if you know, in the Old Testament, Moses brought the Torah, the law, the Ten Commandments. Um, he brings, he gives to his people what God tells him. 
Here is Jesus, the new Moses, greater than Moses. He brings us his word, how to live in his kingdom, how should his subject, how should his people, how must those who believe in him, his disciples, how must they behave or how should their life look like? This is here he speaks to them. And in, in, this, in this Beatitude, chapter 5, verses 2 to 12, it, it's, it's beautiful, it's amazing how when Jesus sits, he opens his mouth, and the first word in verse 3 comes out is blessed. And you see that repeated in verse 3. Blessed, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. So there's crowds here, so lots of people watching, overhearing, but the disciples are closer to him. So the Sermon on the Mount... And, and what chapter 7, what we'll be talking about. Yes, it is for outsiders, for people to, to, to hear and to listen in. It's for everyone. It's for the whole world in a sense. But it is, it's particular, specific, direct application. Uh, is, it's being addressed to the disciples. And we must be very, if we do not understand that, we'll yank it out of context and just make these like moral platitudes, pity sayings, good things. And uh, if you know anything about India, we, uh, we were ruled by British for a long time, and we had um, uh, the father of a nation, uh, the, the great man, Mahatma Gandhi, who helped us um, get attain independence from the British. It is said about him that he loved Sermon on the Mount. He loved it, and he tried to live by the principles based on the Sermon on the Mount. But he was far away from Jesus. He didn't know Jesus. He didn't put his trust in Jesus. So if you, if, you, if, you, if you remove Sermon on the Mount from the kingship of Jesus, if you remove from who this king is, and if you remove it from his kingdom, and if you don't understand that, then these things will become nice things, how to live a life. But you have to see it in the context of the king, the kingdom, and we are his subjects. So he's specifically talking to his disciples. As I said to you earlier, Sermon on the Mount can potentially be very heavy if you just see, oh, we don't do this, anger, lust, um, retaliation, love your enemies, all those kinds of things. I mean, how do, you, how do you do that? It can become very burdensome. Before Jesus talks about those things, in chapter 5, verses 2 to 12, Jesus pronounces blessings. And the word blessed is, is nothing but kind of like happy. Happy you are. You're happy are those. Or the favor of God uh, rests on those. And so the assumption is Jesus assumes, the, and, and Matthew, putting it all together later on, after Jesus' ascension, um, intentionally places it in a certain way for us to understand that these are the people who belong to Jesus. Okay, now look with me in chap chapter 5, verse 3, very quickly. I said I, I will have to work a little hard here, okay? Chapter 5, verse 3, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. So you, you, my disciples, those who, those who are sitting just near me, or yes, you, are, you guys are listening, but I'm talking specifically to you guys. You are blessed. You are happy. The favor of God rests upon you. You belong to me. You are my people. So by doing these things, you're not going to become the disciple of Jesus Christ. You're not going to become part of the kingdom, but you're already part of the kingdom because of the king. You're in the kingdom, and that is why you are blessed. That is why you're happy. That is why the favor of God rests on you. Number one, the first thing in chapter 5, verse 3, is blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Who are these people? Who are these disciples? Who are these subjects? 
Who are these uh, who, who worship this king, who submit to this king, who belong to him? They ought to be those who are poor in spirit. They recognize, they recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. They understand that they are, they are, they are spiritually um, poor. They have nothing to offer to God. They cannot stand before Him. That's the first step, first identity marker, first thing if you are a disciple of God or Jesus Christ, if you're part of the kingdom, if you are in the kingdom. And it's amazing. So Jesus, right off the bat, right in the beginning, as soon as He starts, He just makes it very clear you are the, those who are poor in spirit, number one, in verse 3. And then in verse 4, those who mourn. What do they mourn about? They mourn over their own sins. They mourn over the sins of others around them in the community. And, and it's, it's just recognizing their own spiritual bankruptcy, recognizing that they need a Savior, recognizing that without God's mercy, they are doomed for destruction. That's it. That is why in verse 5, these people are meek, they are humble, um, they have a true estimate of their own selves. They know who they are. They, they do not think highly of themselves. Um, they're meek because they recognize their sinfulness. They recognize that without the intervention of God, without God's grace, without this king having mercy on them, they cannot do anything on their own. And that is why in chapter 5, verse 6, they hunger and thirst for righteousness. They long to know more of God. They long to be more like Him. And that is why in verse 7, they show mercy on others. They, 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 they understand who they are, and therefore they treat others in the similar manner. And in verse 8, they are pure in heart. And not so, not so much because they themselves have changed themselves, but God has done something to them. They're not hypocrite. They're not false, pious frauds. Their, their hearts are undivided, committed to the cause of the kingdom. And that is why in verse 9, chapter 5, verse 9, they are peacemakers. They make peace between people. They have peaceful relationships with one another. But more than that, the peace that they enjoy with God, they want to bring it to others peace that is between them and god that didn't exist before but when you live a life like this verses three to nine it doesn't mean everything will be okay things will still be difficult and this is why you know that this is not talking to anybody and everybody it is specifically talking to those who belong to him so look at me look with me in verse 10 blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake you belong to the king, but that is no guarantee that your life will be okay. Actually, on the opposite, you follow this king, life will be difficult. But yet, in spite of that, you are blessed. In spite of that, God's favor rests upon you. You belong to him. His favor is upon you. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 12 are very important for us before we get into the Sermon on the Mount. Also, after having uh, pronounced blessings, after having encouraged his people, after having shown how God's mercy has been upon them, how they have experienced grace, how they have been brought into the kingdom of God 
through by trusting in this king, by repenting, turning away from their sins. Because of this king, they belong to this kingdom. And therefore, that's why, that's why, verses 13 to 16, they must represent him in this world as salt and light. As salt and light. And not everyone can be salt and light. I mean, salt can be salt, light can be light. And that's what the illustration is amazing. A lot of people just uh, think a lot about, in, in, if you look in chapter 5, verses uh, 13 to 16, a lot of time people spend a lot of time thinking about salt, the, the qualities of salt. I mean, salt can do this, preservation, taste, whatever it is. I mean, the point here in, in chapter 5, verses 13 to 16 is, hey guys, you're my disciples. You're blessed to be my disciples. My favor rests upon you. You belong to me. You're part of the kingdom. Now go, be the disciples. Salt, be the salt. Light, be the light. When salt stops being the salt, it's of no use. When light stops being the light, it's of no use. Therefore, you are my people. You're my disciples. You're part of the kingdom. Be my disciple. Live like my disciple. Go out in the world. And when you go out in the world, when you behave like a disciple, when you live like a disciple, uh, that, that's a good thing. People will see your works, the good works of a disciple, and they will worship God. They will honor him. They will glorify him. But if you won't live like a disciple, you say you're a disciple, you claim to be part of the kingdom, you say, you say the king is great and you want to honor him and you want to worship him, but you wouldn't live according to him, then you're of no use. That's just verbal, just, just, just saying it with your lips, but not living it out. That wouldn't bring glory to God, your God, your Father in heaven. Oh, but Lord, being a light and being salt, salt and light in this world is difficult. It is difficult. It's not easy. I mean, you're expecting a bit too much from us, isn't it? Uh, I mean... Just, so you think that we're part of the kingdom and there's never a break, there's never vacation, there's never off time. Are you a 24-7 disciple? I mean, it's not just Sundays, it's just not weekends. Uh, it's not just when you're with believers. Uh, it's not just with other people who belong to the kingdom. But this is your lifestyle. This is what you are. This is how you're identified. Um, this is your identity, rather. Um, that's why in chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of Pharisees. Uh, don't, don't think you're a disciple. Um, light and salt, maybe, whenever, somehow, uh, there must be some room for error. Um, maybe I can make shift few things. Maybe I can change few things. Jesus says, no, don't think. No, well, I, well, I, I proclaim, um, uh, I've come here to set up this new kingdom. I usher in this kingdom. I'm the king. Uh, as I speak to you about the, the principles to live in this kingdom, uh, if you want to be part of my kingdom, uh, you already, uh, you're, you're blessed because uh, I've brought you into my kingdom. But don't think you can just go about to live as you want to live. There's no room for licentiousness. There's no room for just living life as you want to. Just take it easy. It's all right. 
It's all right. No, you must understand that the demands to be a disciple are great, are huge. You've got to pay a price. You've got to pay a price. You can't just live a life of compromise. It is hard. It is difficult. You must follow him. Ah, that is difficult. Verses 17 to 20. Our righteousness exceeding that of scribes and Pharisees. How can that be? And, and, and I, what I want to, what I'm trying to do here is as we go through this section, before we come to chapter 7, verse 7, I want you to try to imagine the weight that the disciples were feeling at the time. Oh, Jesus, uh, we're excited that you're the king. We're excited that you've ushered in your kingdom. We're excited that you think that we are blessed. But you really think that we can be the light and we can be the salt all the time? You really think that? And you really expect us to be better than these Pharisees? And I don't know if there were Pharisees and, and scribes sitting outside there. I mean, you could almost see their faces. I'm, what the heck? What is he talking about? How can he say that? And on the one hand, people outside in the crowd are surprised. On the other hand, the disciples themselves are feeling, what is Jesus saying? And if you are anything like those disciples at that time, um, I wonder if you read these things, do you also feel that? How can we do that? And then in verses 21 onwards, Jesus just starts giving a lot of imperatives. Before we come to these imperatives, there's the Beatitudes, and that's why I spent some time on it. Because I don't just want us to jump to the, beat and the imperatives and think, Jesus is just telling us, do this, don't do that. But he tells us to do this or don't do that, or he expects us to live a certain life because we belong to him. Because we are in the kingdom. Because he is the king. I hope that makes sense. And doing these things, living, life, like, living a life in this manner, is actually a blessed thing. It's to be blessed. It's to be a happy thing. It's to have God's favor rest upon us. So when you look at chapter 5, verses 21 to 26, Jesus suddenly elevates the standard of the lives, the expectations from the disciples. You've heard that it was said of those, to those of old, you shall not murder. Oh yeah, yeah we agree, Lord. We should murder, yeah. You know that? The Old Testament tells us. And then Jesus just changes us. He, he actually makes it more clear. He applies it more fully. He doesn't remove it. He doesn't abrogate it. There's no abrogation in the, in the, in the scriptures, Christian scripture, by the way. He, it, there's fulfillment. There's this fuller light, understanding, completion, fuller revelation. So Jesus, uh, he, he expects his disciples not to not murder someone, but more than that, not to be angry and to take first steps to reconcile with others in the community. Oh, that's hard, Lord. That's difficult. I mean, I won't murder anyone, but it's okay for me not to have to go to people whom I've offended and try to reconcile with them. That's very hard. No, no, that's what, that's what it means to be part of the kingdom. That's what it means to be part of a family. And the same thing applies for lust in verses 27 to 30. Purity, 
purity of thoughts, purity in, in, in not just physical acts, but even your thoughts matter. Same thing with divorced, verses 31 onward, 32. I mean, commitment, marital fidelity, faithfulness. Uh, how can this be? This, this, is a, this is a new world. Things are changing. We, we are liberated, progressed. We are progressive. Why should we even worry about these things? No, no, you're part of the kingdom. You're expected to live a different life. In verses 33 to 37, so every word that come out of your mouth matters. Uh, your yes be yes, your no be no. You must be reliable. You must be, because you are representing who else but the king. You, so your words should matter. You couldn't be like the people in the world. And verses 38 to 42 I mean, here, it's not just retaliation, but you go, go out of your way to be kind to those who are making your life difficult. Have you ever tried doing this in your life? Have you ever tried doing this? I mean, this is like an impossible task. What is Jesus asking? So that's why some people, when they read Sermon on the Mount, they think, ah, this is for monks. This is for those people who live in, in, in monasteries. Uh, maybe it's for a special class of people. Uh, maybe Jesus is just showing the standards, but we'll never attain it. Therefore, don't even bother. Maybe this is just to drive on our knees to, to, to repent of sins. Now, that's true, and it drives us to Jesus. That's true. But it also expects us to, to, to attempt to pursue, to live a life that reflects these virtues, values, principles. We are expected to do that. Say, see with me in chapter 5, verses uh, 43, onwards, verse 47. Jesus says, love your enemies, not just neighbors. I mean, you will love your neighbors. You have to love your neighbors because you have to live next to those people. So somehow you are trying to, you have to, to make do with, somehow you have to have good relationships with them. But Jesus says, no, 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 you love your enemies. So the standards are very different in verse 48. Chapter 5, verse 48. Look at this verse. You, therefore. You, therefore. Who? You, you, the disciples. You're sitting close to me. You, you want to hear me teach? I, I, I want you to do this. You must be perfect. Why? Because your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, again, every time, I mean, it's like every, every passing moment. The more Jesus speaks, the more insurmountable, impossible, difficult task it seems. Can I even live a life like this? Is this even possible? I mean, is this life even for us? Is it just for pastors, elders, deacons, I don't know, special people, missionaries? Who is this for? I don't know, it's for everyone. So chapter 6 onward, that's why I said, well, okay, Jesus is talking about righteousness, but he's not talking about hypocritical, external righteousness. When he's talking about being perfect, when he's talking about to being better, greater, more than the Pharisees, he's not just talking about some external things, a checklist. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I'm okay. So what happened in those, uh, back in those days, there were three things, um, three acts of pieties in the Jewish communities. Uh, giving, uh, praying, and fasting. And you know what sinful human nature, what we do is, we take good things and we twist them around. We twist them around. 
Good things like giving, it's a good thing, we must give, give to the needy. Uh, uh, praying, good thing, we must pray. Fasting, a good thing. Three acts of piety that would show a, show a, a godliness, a trust in the Lord. But, but human religion, which is twisted, takes those things and makes it into something, an attempt to please God, impress God, while we're impressing people. External piety. So Jesus says, basically, the reason why this section is here, well, when I'm talking about perfect living, when I'm talking about your righteousness must be better than Pharisees, I do not mean external pharisaical just for the namesake doing things. What I'm concerned about, I'm concerned about your heart. I'm concerned about your heart. Oh, so the very thing that we thought was good, we were doing well, you've taken that away also. You want us to, 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 to be the disciples? You want us to be the salt and the light? And yet, everything that I think that I'm doing okay, you just seem to be taking it away from me. That's what happens in chapter 6, verses 1 onwards, all the way to uh, verse 18. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have much time, so we can't dive into each and every text. But uh, that's precise. That's if you are try if you see the flow of the text, that's what's going on. Okay, fine, fine. So I don't. Uh, if I give to the needy, I need to be careful. I don't need to show off. I if I pray, I shouldn't worry about trying to to uh, to impress people in public gatherings. Uh, that doesn't mean we cannot or must not pray in public gatherings. We should pray in public gatherings, but not with the purpose of impressing people. Um, I shouldn't, when, when I fast, I shouldn't do it in order to impress people again. Otherwise, God has already, God who sees what we do in secret will not reward us. Uh, okay, so I don't need to give away then. Uh, because why would I even bother giving if nobody knows what I'm giving? Uh, no, you must give. You must not try to just, just keep things here on this earth. And I want to talk more because we'll talk about that later. You rather invest in the kingdom, you give away, verses 19 onwards, and you trust God all the way to verse 34 in chapter 6, that God will provide for you. He will provide for your, uh, for your daily needs. So a true disciple is the one who would trust the king for his provisions, for his, his regular daily life. If you are a true disciple, you're not trying to just live and, and preserve and protect and somehow um, enhance your life here by your own strength, might, and with using all the means that you have, but you trust God. And the way you show trust in Him is by investing, giving away in the kingdom, for the kingdom, for the sake of the kingdom. All right, okay, so I must trust God, I must give away. That's hard, that's difficult. And I don't like all these things. I'm unable to do all these things. But I do give away. I do pray. I do fast. I do, I'm living a life of um, piety. Chapter 7, verses 1 onwards. But others don't live like this. Uh, I give a lot. I give more than, I, uh, more than others. I pray more than others. I trust God for my provision. I trust God for my future. I trust God for my security. I trust God for my welfare. See, the problem with human um, 
acts of piety is, the minute we do that, we think we are better than others, and then we start judging others. We start looking down upon others. That's the, that's the, the, the problem. I mean, if I do it, I'm in trouble. If I don't do it, I'm in trouble. If I go this way, I'm in trouble. If I go that way, I'm in trouble. What, what must I do? I mean, if you read Matthew, chapter 5, 6 onwards, that's basically you start a feeling. That's the weight that should be upon your shoulders. As you, if you don't feel that, that means you haven't understood it. So that's what's happening in chapter 7. You shouldn't judge others. Why do you bother about your brother's speck in his eye? Look at your own life. Be concerned with your own godliness. Be concerned with your own piety. Be concerned with your own heart. It's about you first, primarily. It's not about others' lives. Now, that's a good thing, right? And we should think about how our brothers are doing. But it, it starts with accountability. I want, I want to help you grow in the Lord. I want to help you being accountable. And very soon it becomes into a very manipulative and judgmental lifestyle. So Jesus in chapter 7 verses 1 to 5 is denouncing judgmentalism. An attitude of cutting down others. A, a, a perspective where I think I am better than everyone else. Well, the temptation is that when you do this, when you read chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, then you say, oh yeah, you're right, I shouldn't judge. Then what I'm tempted, I'm tempted to suspend all my discernment. It's okay, live and let live. I mean, you do what you want to do, I do what I want to do, I don't want to judge you. Because Jesus said, judge not. No, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, don't be judgmental. How do we know? In the very next verse, in verse 6, Jesus says, do not give to dogs or to pigs. I mean, that's very judgmental. <laughs> that's very judging, very strong words. Who is he talking about? What should you not give? I mean, why would... And Jesus, using these words, just makes it very clear. Do not swing the pendulum so far that you suspend all judgment, but you must be wise. You must be discerning. You should know what is right. You should know what is wrong. You should know who the pigs are. You should know who the dogs are. The word dogs was often used in those days by people, uh, Jewish teachers, for pagans. And effectively, Jesus uses that and flips it on them. And it's a very strong language. You don't want to suspend your judgment, your ability to know what is right, what is wrong, but, but be wise, be careful, um, discern what are good for you, and know what the right teaching is, and know how to live in the kingdom. But there will be people who will not accept that teaching, and it's okay, just leave them alone. Let them be. Let them be. That's what Jesus is saying. By the time we come to verse 6, it's like, Jesus, how can I know what is right, when is right, what, which direction I must go? How do I live a life that you expect me to live, a life of disciple that's being laid before us here in this, in this section? How can I do that, Lord? If I try to do it in my own strength, it will be impossible. If I try to do it on my own, 
I'm surely bound to fail. If I try to do it on my own, I will be full of pride. I'll think, I can do it. And I'll fall back in the same trap that the Pharisees had fallen into. And the very thing that Jesus has denounced a few verses before ago, he said, I will go back to that thing. My piety would be external. My righteousness would be external. It would be about impressing people. It would be about showing people that I'm a good man. And I live a good life. And I look at me, I serve God. Look at me, I love people. Look at me, how much I invest in other people. Look at me, how much I disciple. Look at me, how much I give. Look at me, how much I'm committed to the community. All the things we twisted, and very soon it will become about me. But not the way how God wants it to be. Some of us would be tempted to say, I just can't do it. So either we'd be tempted to do it on our own, in our own strength, and we'd fall into the trap that the Pharisees had fallen into, and we'd be full of pride, and we'd be far away from the kingdom, and the kingdom would have nothing to do with us, and we think we are in the kingdom, but we actually are out of the kingdom by the very virtue, the way we live. But some of us, on the other hand, would be tempted to despair. And I want to particularly encourage those people here this evening. I mean, how can I, how can I follow my Lord faithfully? How can I pursue godliness? It is hard. It is difficult. I get to spend time with my brother and sister just a couple of hours in a week. And after that, I'm with people who are constantly beckoning me, calling me to live a life in this world. The world, the flesh, and the devil continues to, to attract me, to pull me, to pull me away from the way, the path that the Lord has laid before me. I don't think I can do it on my own. I don't think I want to do it also sometimes. I think I want to give up. This is where Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 12, 11 are beautiful. This section comes in as an encouragement for those who are feeling that there's a lot of burden on their shoulders. Jesus says, come to me, come to me, those who are tired, who are weary, who are heavy laden, come to me, I will give you rest. This, is, this section is for those, this is not for those who, who are self-sufficient. This is not for those who are proud and arrogant and I can do it on my own. This is for those, Lord, have mercy on me. The demands, the expectation, the life of a disciple is difficult, but I can do it, Lord. I, I want to do it. I want to live this life, but I need your help. And this is what, in verses 7 onward, you ask, and you knock, you seek, and you knock. And so the one thing that I want us to take away, just one thing, which is very obvious, that the true disciples, the true disciples, they know, they know that the Heavenly Father is the provider of all good things. They know that the Heavenly Father is the provider of all good things. And therefore, they come to Him. And therefore, they come to Him. That's it. This is what this text is saying. So you come to Him. I go to Him. We together, as a community of people, as people of God, as a church, as individuals, we go to Him and we ask Him. 
See, this is, where, what, what, this is what I was trying to say earlier. If you just see verses 7 to 11 and you do not understand the context, you will make it as a passage for name it and claim it. I, I want a big car, I want a big house, I want a, big, a better job, um, the specific girl that I want to get married to, a guy that I want to get married to, uh, whatever things in this world, but that's not what it is about. Here, when Jesus talks about in verses 7 onwards, ask, seek, and knock, and I don't think there's much difference. Some kind of uh, intensity increase in intensity. Um, this is not a one-off act. This is a continuous act. Um, this is something that you keep on doing and you must do. This reminds us of Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13 in the Old Testament when God talks to his people and they say, If you will seek me, you shall find me. Come to me. Come. Come out. Come. Seek me. Work. I mean, that's what it's going on in verses 7 onwards. Uh, it, it, so we, we must ask. It's a continuous thing. It's not just one-off thing. I can often think of my little, my little son. He will often uh, shout out, Mama, Mommy, Mommy, where are you? Where are you? Then if she doesn't respond, he'll get up, he'll go, he'll go looking for her in different rooms of the house. If, she, if, if there's a room that is shut, the door of that room is shut, then he'll start knocking at the door. Mama, are you in there? Mommy, come out. Mommy, I need you. So it's, it's that kind of persistence. It's that kind of just, just, just longing, wanting to, to find God, to help him with us. And when it says in verse 7, it will be given to you, you will find, it will be open to you. That the language there is of divine passive. It is, the, it is God who will do it for you. So it's not because I have prayed. It's not because I have sought. It's not because I have knocked. Things have happened. It's because I have prayed. I have, I have, I have, I have knocked and I have, I have sought. God does it for us. But what does he do for us? What, have we, what must we ask him for? The context makes it clear. The context is the key. The life of a disciple to be, a, to be the salt in this world, not to lose a saltiness. Salt that is not salty is of no use. It is no salt. Disciple that can't live like a disciple is no disciple, is of no use. Light that doesn't show light is of no use. Disciple that doesn't live like a disciple is of no use. So what do we ask God for? What do we knock for? What do we seek? Oh, we seek for all the things that chapter 5, 6, 7 has to say to us all the way to chapter 8. We ask for all the things that the scripture tells us. We ask for wisdom as was read by, for us earlier. We ask for things that will help us to honor God and to live for Him. Verses 7 and 8. So you ask, and in verse 8, it's beautiful. It says, for everyone without exception... Without exception, it doesn't matter which country you're from, what your cultural background is. If you ask for these things, you shall receive, you shall find, and it shall be open for you. I mean, that's such an encouragement for you and I, right? There's no doubt. I mean, there's no question if God will answer our prayers. Of course He will answer our prayers if we come to Him for these things. And in verse 9 it says, it gives a great illustration for what, which of you? Your son asks for something, for bread, will you give stones? For fish, will you give a serpent? And that's a great illustration. 
I mean, I'll go back and uh, go back home. My kids will be very excited to see me. But more than me, they'll be excited to see what I have for them in my suitcase. They say, Daddy, we're happy to have you back. They will even sometimes make posters and, and pictures and put it up. But very soon they want to jump and see what's in the bag. Imagine, imagine. If my kids open and I say, hey, kids, come here. I've got you amazing bread from Dubai. And I give it to them. But it's actually rock. It's a rock, a piece of rock. I say, I've got you some good meat from Dubai. But it's actually a serpent. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Hey, I mean, could you ever do that? Would you ever do that? No, why, why should I go and ask God? Why should I seek after him? Why should I knock at his door? I, I'm not even sure if he's going to answer me. I'm not even sure. What if, what, if, what if I've gone so far away from him? What if God has given up on me? What if God is too busy? What if God thinks that there's no point in answering the prayers of this man here? What if God says, oh, you've lived your life of 50 years of useless life. Now you come to me. No, he's not like that. I mean, Jesus is amazing. It's, it's beautiful in verse 11. It says, if you then who are evil... It's exposing the, the wickedness of our heart. You who are sinful, you who are twisted, you are evil. There's nothing good about you guys. But even you would not do that. So the argument is from lesser to the greater. If you, of all people, you are like this, why do you doubt God's goodness? Why do you think God would not answer your prayers? Why do you think God doesn't care for you? Why do you think God doesn't love you? Why do you think God wouldn't provide for you? Why do you think God would be silent and ignore your cries? Why do you think he wouldn't open the doors for you? No, he will. He shall. He, that's his character. He will do it. He, he, he. But the point is, you and I must doubt, must not doubt his goodness. Verse 11. If you then who are evil... You know how to give good gifts to your children. You care for them. You provide for them. You look after them. You provide them shelter, clothing. There's something happens. You know, a lot of young people, young people, single, will live life, very selfish lives. And I'm talking about myself. When I was single, very selfish. I'm self-centered, just, just thinking about myself. The minute you get married, the minute you start having children, something happens to you. Yeah, something happens in your heart. The Lord enlarges your heart for your children. I mean, that's the way we've been created. It's to reflect who actually God is, to understand more of His character. I mean, if we would do that for our children, we would lay down our lives for our children, why would God not give us good gifts? And that's exactly what God does for us. He has done for us in and through the life of His Son, Jesus Christ. He has given us the best thing that we needed, the most important thing that we needed. He has provided for our salvation through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. And He continues to provide us through the Spirit, even today, by indwelling in us and in the community, in the church. Verse 11, it says, how much more your father, the point is, is he your father? Do you see him as a father or do you see him as an ogre? You see him as someone who, who oppresses your life? It doesn't matter how your physical father was. It doesn't matter how people around us have been. But this father 
is the epitome of what fatherhood is, what good father is like. And he's not a father who's absent. He's not a father who's abdicated his responsibility, who's run away, who has pressed the ejection button, has gone out of a life. No, he's engaged in a life. He loves us. He cares for us. He'll provide for us. He will answer our prayers. He'll answer our cries. Lord, I want to be a disciple that honors you. I want to live a life that glorifies you. Lord, I want to be the salt. I want to be the light so that when people see my life, they honor you and glorify you. And when we pray prayers like that, the Lord answers our prayers. Because he's a father. You know, when, when, when Jewish people, when they hear, every time they would hear the word father, they would, like, they would shudder. A father? I mean, a lot of people in this region wouldn't be able to say that about God. But you and I have the pleasure, the honor, the privilege, the joy of calling God the father. That's the relationship we have. You know, my children, they don't have to take an appointment to come to me. They come to me anytime in the middle of the night. I am deep in sleep. It doesn't matter. I go back. I, whatever work I have, they will come to me. Dad, I want to talk to you about this. I must drop everything and talk to them because I am their father. And they know that. They know that my dad will listen to me. Why would you doubt God's goodness? I mean, the devil, the twisted, the evil one, the wicked one, he wants us to turn our eyes away from the goodness that is found in a good God and doubt in his character and want to go more into the world, further away from him. This is not for me. This is out of my league. I don't think I can do it. Of course you can't do it. It is out of your league. Of course. You can't do it. You need him. He will enable you. He will help you. He will strengthen you. He will give you, give you what you need in order to live in this Christian life. So verse 11, it goes on to say, a Father who is in heaven. I mean, this is very important, a phrase very important, because in heaven, meaning his, he is there forever and ever. He is far away. He's transcendent. He's powerful. He, he is like no one else, yet he's imminent. He's with us. He's close to us. He's always available. His throne is permanent. It's fixed. He will not be seceded. His throne will not, be, will not be taken away by someone else. Nobody can usurp that. His throne is there forever in heaven. So come to him whenever you want to. Ask him whenever you want to. Seek his face whenever you want to. Knock at his door whenever you want to. For the things that will glorify him. Good things. Good things. Who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him. What are the good things? All the good things that we've seen in chapter 5 onwards. I mean, come to him. Come to him. Longing for righteousness. Chapter 5, verse 6. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Come to him. When, when, you, when you're struggling with sin, when you're struggling with temptations, when you're struggling with trials, when you're struggling uh, to, to even, 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 even wanting to follow him, come to him. I mean, do not try to fight those things with your own strength. Do not seek strength outside somewhere else, but come to him. Hey, he has shown us that he loves us. He will certainly give us good things. Yes, there are, I mean, I mean in good things, you can talk about spiritual, physical things also, because in chapter 6, Jesus tells us that we can ask him for our daily needs. 
bread, certainly, basic need for sustenance. But I think more than that, the thrust, the force, the idea is wanting to honor Him, glorifying Him, and living our lives for Him. So the true disciples know that the Heavenly Father is the provider of all good things. He's the one who gives us all good things. He's the one who sends all good things. And we must, just like James tells us. James tells us in chapter 4, it says that, well, you know what? Uh, you do not have because you do not ask in chapter 4, verse 2. So what must we do? We must ask. I mean, but do you even feel the need for it? The tragedy, the sadness, the, 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 the twistedness of a heart is sometimes we feel we're doing fine, we're doing fine. I mean, we, we, we long for things of this world more than the things of God. A mind that is set on flesh will think about things of flesh and this world. A mind that is set on spirit will think about things of spirit, of spiritual nature. Why do we not long for those things? Why do, you, why do you and I not long for godliness, for piety, to, to be like Him, to be peacemakers, peacemakers between people, between God and men, wanting to see people know who this God is? Why do you I? Because something hasn't happened. So I want, if you do not even have an urge, desire, understanding, inclination for that, I, I, I beg you, would you please come to Him and ask Him to give you a new heart? The King of Kings, the Lord of the Lord, the, the Lord of this universe, He sent His Son almost 2,000 years ago for you and me to live a perfect life in my place for you. And He died on the cross in our place to pay the penalty of our sins so that by trusting in Him, we might be united to Him and live with Him forever and in this life and life after life. That's what you must and I long for. Think of things in not just in this life, but to live in this life according to Matthew chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, but also longing for life yet to come, life everlasting, to be with Him, to be united to Him. What do we ask for, though? What do we ask for? You ask and you do not receive. James chapter 4, verse 3. Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So I pray that God would have mercy on us. He would have mercy on you, on me, that we would ask for good things. Can we ask for things for basic needs? Yes, of course. There's nothing wrong with that. But more than that, let's long for things that will show and prove and make it very clear that we are His disciples. We are living for Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you very much for this word that encourages us to come to you, to seek your face, to enable us to live for you, to honor you, and to glorify you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.